Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast. As we turn our attention to the new pop culture of 2022, one thing we can be sure about this year, there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, your host and editor over at thinkchristian.net. With the book of Boba Fett, Star Wars gives one of its most iconic villains a second chance. On his new album, Dawn FM, The Weeknd appears to be thinking about giving himself one. Maybe? Spiritual self-reflection unites these two pieces of pop culture, so we're going to be considering them in tandem on this episode. Is this the sort of soul-searching and second chances we see in the Bible, like the Psalms of David or Jesus' encouragements to go and sin no more? Jer Foresteros and Abby Chessy are going to join me to discuss. Quickly, before we jump in, after a holiday break, the TC Movie Club is back in session. We're at the midway point in our series considering the films of Joel and Ethan Cohen. Next up is their 2009 Best Picture winner, No Country for Old Men. My video essay is up on the Think Christian YouTube channel, setting up our next online discussion, in which we're going to consider No Country within an Old Testament, New Testament framework. That online gathering is 2 p.m. Central on Sunday, February 27. If you're not part of the club, you can join. This is a great time to do it. Just sign up at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. We'll send out an email with a meeting link and an invite. And again, that's thinkchristian.net slash movie club if you do want to join us at 2 p.m. on February 27. Okay, back to Second Chances and Star Wars. Let's talk the book of Boba Fett. J.R. Forresteros is here with me to discuss the book of Boba Fett, the latest Star Wars series streaming on Disney+. And Jer, from the time that the silent, helmeted, jetpack-wearing bounty hunter first appeared in 1980's The Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars fans have, have longed to know more about this character. I know I was obsessed with Boba Fett as a kid. Has he been a figure of fascination for you as well? Of course. And it is so strange, right? Because I think he has like a total of maybe 10 minutes of screen time in the original trilogy. Probably and something like, you like said, that, yeah. Like one line or two maybe, right? It, and yet you're right. He became like a standout favorite outside of the core cast. I don't know that anyone got as popular as him. Yeah, it was something maybe about the silence. Like he was this silent, mysterious figure. The costume design, I mean, as a kid, just lit your imagination on fire. Um, so some combination of all of that. There's been this mystique around Boba Fett for a long time. I am easily persuaded with a jetpack. You know, Rocketeer, okay, that's all Boba you need. Fett, sign me up. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> Understandable. So, JR, you've guided us through Star Wars territory before. You wrote at thinkchristian.net about um, season two of The Mandalorian, and that's where Boba Fett appeared recently, most recently. So maybe you can give us some context for this series, how it's related to The Mandalorian, when it takes place within the larger Star Wars timeline. Let's not get too bogged down, but can you kind of, course, of just give, of me course, the, yeah. give me the basics here? So, you know, The Mandalorian was set just after the events of The Return of the Jedi, uh, and Boba Fett is set uh, kind of in the same space, right? We have we have some flashback stuff, so we get to see how he escaped from the Sarlacc pit, which has always been the big question, uh, and then how he sort of got to the place where we met him in Mandalorian. And then now we're watching him in the events following the Mandalorian, uh, where essentially he is taking over Jabba the Hutt's crime empire on Tatooine and, you know, trying 
trying to be a better crime boss, I guess. I like that. That is kind of like, is that the moral question of this series? Maybe, I guess we'll, we'll kind of get into that. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of concurrent, as you said, with the Mandalorian, that's a helpful way for me to think about it as I've been trying to place myself. We have watched now, we should note, I think three episodes as we're recording this. So kind of almost at the midway point, our feelings, little disclaimer here may shift what we say about it, depending on where this thing goes. I'll say overall right now, the production as a whole feels like it's a degree or two below what we got in The Mandalorian. Part of that is just visually. I don't know if they're using more CGI or it's less convincing CGI. Even something like uh, Ludwig Göransson's music, which was, I think his score for The Mandalorian was a standout, is kind of a little less muscular here. And for me, a lot of it is, so playing Boba Fett is Tamuera Morrison. And I don't know. He's fine, you know, totally fine. But I don't know if he's compelling enough to anchor a series. He almost moves and looks a little bit like someone who's just about to age out of cosplay a little bit and is kind of still s- stuck in it. And, you know, Pedro Pascal as the title character, of The Mandalorian, he he just had more character even as a physical presence. He was mostly underneath that helmet, but his movements, the posture he would hold, that um, made him compelling to me as a character. I don't know if Morrison has that. So are, are you higher on Morrison than me on the series overall than me, JR, at this point? I'm not necessarily. I, I will say, you know, one, I will be curious once Mandalorian Season 3 comes out, if in fact it does not have Baby Yoda in it, how how high people will be on it. Because yeah. that was by far the core driving force of the first two seasons of The Mandalorian. You know, we got like 20 new Grogu gifts every time right. an episode aired, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and we don't have that here. And I mean, beyond that, right? Like, can I be a good crime boss is a little bit tougher of a sell story-wise than protect the poor, cute little baby, sure. right? Like, everyone can be on board with Mando's driving mission in The Mandalorian, Whereas, and even his struggle as to his dedication to that mission. Yeah. It's easy to introduce a lot of shades of gray when your mission is don't let the baby get killed. You know, like yep. no one's ever going to be like, are we sure he's on the right side of things? Like when you're pro don't kill babies, like you're always going to be the good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with Boba Fett, you're, you know, I think one, his desires are a little more nebulous, how he's going to accomplish them are undefined at this point. I think by episode three, and even the end of episode two with the Tuscan Raiders, we had a little bit more clarity about how the show was going to make us like him. But yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I mean, I don't know that very many actors are on Pedro Pascal's level, period. So that's that's certainly not a dig at any of the actors in the Book of Boba Fett. Pascal was a great get, and I think it was paired just with the exactly right story. So, like you said earlier, maybe we're going to come around on this thing by the end of the season. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that, the whole the good crime boss question, because I think it's related to this idea of um, of second chances that we want to focus on. We, we are expecting some sort of turn. You know, the first episode sets us up that Boba Fett, something is going to happen for him that will distinguish him from that sort of merciless, silent bounty hunter we knew from Star Wars lore. And, you know, second chance is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Second, third, 
fourth chances. I mean, that's the gospel story, really, with, with Jesus ultimately saying, I've got this, I've got all your chances covered, okay? But when we think about the notion of um, second chances and spiritual self-reflection, just those points in our lives where we take stock of where we are, of, of recognizing that we may need to make a turn toward God and the acceptance that's being offered to us. When I think about that, one of the biblical models that comes to mind is the prophet Jonah. So stubborn guy, really struggled with following God's will for his life, despite many chances that he got, even in that small story that we're given. Of course, at the beginning of Jonah's story, he he rejects God's command to serve the people of Nineveh, flees on a ship, and, and ends up in the belly of the whale, where he does some intense soul-searching. Well, Book of Boba Fett, you already kind of hinted at this, ends, or it begins, rather, in its own belly of the whale, right? We're in the Sarlacc pit, this hole in the desert on Tatooine where there's this giant squid-like creature's mouth just awaiting prey. It's where Boba Fett presumably met his fate in 1983's Return of the Jedi when we saw him fall into the pit. And just quickly, like, that's that's a key moment for theoretically a villain, but I, as a kid, remember seeing that and being, like, sad. Like, no, no more Boba Fett. <laughs> so that just shows you how he'd kind of connected, the character had connected with us. Here in the first episode of The Book of Boba Fett, we see him alive in the, I guess, belly of the Sarlacc, right? Struggling, don't know the biology there, but struggling to escape. And so I just wonder what you make of this Jonah-Boba parallel, JR, and maybe more largely, how how did the idea of second chances, spiritual self-reflection work for you in the book of Boba Fett? Because it seems to be a recurring theme thus far. Yeah, so I, I love that you went to Jonah because my reading of Jonah is a little bit more, I want to say nuanced, but maybe cynical is the right word. Okay. Uh, so, so you rightly identified, right? Jonah flees from God's commands, goes on a ship. The ship gets into a storm, and Jonah basically tells the sailors, hey, your only shot here is to throw me overboard. I'm the reason this is happening. So they do. They're, you know, no, they ask, like, the bare minimum number of questions. Are you sure? Okay, great. Take him over. <laughs> and when he when he goes into the sea, ancient readers would have would have read this as his death. And in fact, even in the song that he sings in the belly of the whale, he talks about going into the the gates of Sheol, right? So, which is the the Hebrew version of the grave. And so so he understands the whale as a death and resurrection, much in the same way I think the book of Boba Fett wants us to. What's interesting though, folks who have read the whole book of Jonah know, he doesn't become a hero. Uh, when he no. gets to Nineveh, his sermon is literally four words long in Hebrew. It is literally the bare minimum that he could possibly do to fulfill God's command. And then once he delivers it, he goes and he sits outside the city to wait to see if God is in fact going to, to overthrow them. And when God instead responds to their repentance, which is made out of ignorance because Jonah doesn't even tell them which God is angry at them, right? So they're they're literally just like, throwing up Hail Mary repentance prayers Panic. to like whoever is mm -hmm. is angry at them. And Jonah basically gets mad at God and in the fourth chapter says, see, like, I knew that you would find any excuse to forgive them. And this is why I didn't want to go. When you back up to the whale, I think we often read this as Jonah repenting, but mm. it's not. And this gets, we're going to get up real nerdy for a second. So forgive me and feel free to cut all this out if we don't want it. But there are different genres of Psalms and there is a whole genre of Psalm that is designed for repenting and confessing. Uh, the most sure. famous one, Psalm 51, right? That is is set when David confesses his sin with Bathsheba and, and we have this whole thing. That's not the genre of Psalm that Jonah offers. 
Jonah offers a different genre, which is reserved for celebrating the power of God. It's, it's a royal song. So we would expect if Jonah were repenting, like he has this whole, you know, he has this whole genre of songs, right, to pull from if he wants to repent, and he doesn't do that. Instead, he offers a song about God's power and God's glory, which, of course, is what's been happening so far, right? God comes to Jonah, Jonah runs away, God sends a storm, Jonah gets thrown overboard, and he's like, well, fine, at least now I'll die and I don't have to go to Nineveh, God sends a fish. And Jonah's mm-hmm. like, okay, I get it, like, mm-hmm. you're going to make me go whether I want to or not. Yeah. So the way I the way I like to say this is Jonah does not repent, Jonah relents. Mm. He agrees to do what God wants without agreeing that God is right. And Interesting. that's that's a really important distinction there that I think we see borne out in the rest of his story that he he doesn't preach the way we would expect a preacher who has the opportunity to announce this good news to a bunch of sinners, right? Uh, and then yeah. he, he doesn't celebrate when they repent the way God is celebrating. Jonah doesn't turn, and in, in a lot of ways, you could argue, argue he ends up being the villain of this book named after him. Mm-hmm. So when I take that into the book of Boba Fett, yeah. what I'm wondering now, right, is Boba Fett has had this resurrection experience, as you noted, that we actually start the show with. And we can see that he he has already said a couple of times, I'm not a bounty hunter. Right? So he is already rejecting this way that he was, this past life yeah. that he had. And we can see that he's trying to be something different, and at least in his mind, something better. And I think for me, the best example of that is when he, uh, the water merchant played by Stephen Root, comes to him and and is complaining. And so when Boba Fett goes and investigates this little speeder gang that is stealing, he he figures out that okay, they're they're both in the wrong, right? Like certainly the speeder gang should not be committing crimes in his territory, but they're doing it because the water merchant is charging unjust prices for water. They stole from me, and you're just going to let them off. What do they owe you? 1,300 credits. For water? 1,300 credits. Give them 500. What? They owe 1,300. I heard you the first time. Take the 500 and consider it resolved. If you want to continue to do business in my territory. And so he corrects them both, right? And he does so in such a way that he's trying to create a new, more just space where the the cyborg speeder kids don't have to resort to crime to thrive and where this water merchant can actually live in harmony with those who are a part of his community. Because right now he's not, right? He's exploiting them. And so he he is trying to create a space unlike the space that Jabba ruled over that is more equitable. I think you see that too with the way he handles the Black Wookiee. Right, the Hut twins even offer. They say, "Yeah, go ahead and kill him. We don't care. Whatever. Sorry, our bad." Boba Fett lets him go. We get we get another emphatic statement: "I am not that." And in parentheses, you hear anymore, right? Because yep. we know he was that before the Sarlacc pit. So, so I I actually in reading Boba Fett through the book of Jonah, I see a lot of possibility that maybe he can be something better than what has come before him. And maybe, unlike Jonah, he has received this opportunity for a second chance and is is making the most of it, which which I think that's the definition of repentance. Yeah, I think that's that's a helpful distinction you make there. And perhaps it would be even more akin to Jonah if he had crawled out of the pit and was stubborn 
and did just go back immediately to his ways, sought vengeance on, you know, tried to figure out what happened. Why, how did I end up in the pit? Because if I recall correctly, it's kind of an accidental thing. Han Solo bumps him from behind, right? Hits off his jet, jet pack, malfunction. So, so there could be that whole other route, which would more directly mimic Jonah's story. So I think you, I think you have a right description of where the book of Boba Fett wants to go. And I'm intrigued by that. And I admire the ambition of framing it this way, sort of those flashbacks you mentioned where we get him at two different periods of his experience. Yet, I don't know, there's something about the execution that it's all happening way too quickly for me. I'm almost more confused than the fact that I'm not buying it. It makes his... It makes any sort of repentance, if you want to use those terms, or just his turn, let's just be more general, his turn to not make sense. And I'm, and I'm always wondering, like, well, why is he doing this now? I mean, he helps the Tuscan Raiders pretty much immediately after they've imprisoned and abused him while imprisoning him. Suddenly, he becomes their champion. And it's strange because I would say the overall pacing of the series has been very slow so far. So it's strange that at once the character feels like he's turning about too quickly, yet the pacing of the narrative seems slow. Now, there's a really striking sequence in, I believe, the second episode. It's almost psychedelic where he has become part of the Tuscan tribe at this point, and they send him through this ritual to seek a tree in the desert. And when he's there, it sort of envelops him, and we get visually as well as thematically a vision of him back in the Sarlacc pit, in that stomach amongst, not tentacles, but just slimy, you know, he he's stuck there. And I almost wish, you know, I wish that opening sequence in the pit had, instead of just the physical grossness, more of a sense of the existential angst that the series so far seems to assume Boba Fett has gone through. I didn't get that when he's in the pit. It was more about how gross it was, the physical struggle to get out, I needed a sense, and here's where I'll go back to, I, I think there is some similarity going on, the sense of self-reflection that in Jonah's prayer is at least happening. It may be a different sort of prayer, as you said, but I think there is some self-reflection about where I am at this point and what is next for me. Um, they probably diverge from that point, but I didn't really get that existential sense, even though we get these images of Boba Fett in this tank where he has fl the flashbacks and he seems to still be struggling with that. I don't know. There was just, if I had more of a sense of that in that opening sequence, I think I might be able to buy the fact that he's now going to be a nice guy crime boss, which as you said, itself is kind of like an oxymoron. Like, is that why? What's his motivation for that? I don't feel like the series has given it to us thus far. Yeah. You know, the only thing that I think of is I'm pretty sure and forgive me, Star Wars fans, it has been a while since I've seen Return of the Jedi. I'm pretty sure that they mention that when you go into the Sarlacc, you're like digested for a thousand years or something like that. That sounds familiar. Right. But like even there, right, you and I are both having to like stretch back for a property that, yes, while it is set maybe months before this is decades apart, you know, in their creation. Right. And, and I, how hard would it be to give us a couple of lines of dialogue? And again, maybe we're going to still get them. Maybe we're going to get what, maybe we're going to get a big monologue and, you know, the penultimate episode or something like that. But for now, like I'm having to do a lot of work outside of the text of the show itself to, mm -hmm. and making a bunch of assumptions that, that you're right are just not there that I think would 
would solidify this in some ways that would feel more compelling the way they the way Mandalorian was. Yeah, and absolutely that's a caveat for me. I you know, as much as I've been a fan of the series my whole life, I don't have that encyclopedic knowledge of the associations. What you say about We're the sorry. thousand years. <laughs> yes, we apologize. Um not not that obsessive of a show when it comes to Star Wars, just an appreciative one. But yeah, when you say that, that's one of the horrifying things about, you know, that you're digested for so long. So if you remember that, that's some of the terror you know he's probably feeling aside, inside. But again, in terms of the filmmaking or even the performance in that moment, I guess I wish there had been a little bit more of that. So uh, we're a little cool, a little lukewarm on, on it so far. Do you think, JR, you're going to finish it up and watch the rest? For sure. I mean, I still, I still have enjoyed bits of every episode. You know, the train heist in the second episode was tremendous fun. I love the speeder gang, which I know has divided the internet yet again. Um, but I enjoy them. Maybe it's because the actress is from Yellow Jackets, which is my true obsession right now. But I think they're building a fun little cast. And I it makes me hopeful for what we're going to get by the end of the season. So the speeder gang, you mean the, the cyber, um, cyberpunk yeah. gang? Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I was not aware of the internet controversy, so I will just jump in here and say I am on the side of the people who it sticks out like a sore thumb to me among <laughs> the Star, go, Star Wars universe. It's just like, again, not an obsessive expert, but I look at those those multicolored bikes and I'm like, are we in space grease? What's going on here? This is not this is <laughs> it's not funny my that you thing. say that. Because all of the defenders online have been sharing a bunch of pictures of George Lucas from back in the day with all of his hot rods. That and then would they've make gone, sense. You know, they've gone and pointed at the the prequels, where whenever you do get something that's slick and shiny, it does yeah. tend to have that sort of aesthetic. Uh, you just yeah. don't get much of that in Star Wars, to your point. I'm a, I'm a prequel defender, but this even felt a little too much. Yeah, Lucas, <laughs> American graffiti. I'm, I'm getting like Lucas and American graffiti, and let's not let's not go there. I'm, I'm kind of torn on watching it some more. It's helpful, you know. My wife will watch Star Wars, likes it, but I think it goes back to your your Grogu point. You know, Mandalorian, she really liked, and it was Baby Yoda. There isn't Baby Yoda here, so it might be. I might have to find time to finish this series on my own if I feel like I'm going to. We do have a baby creature, though, with the, uh, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the Rancor. Rancor, thank you. Baby Rancor. So, yes, a giant baby Rancor. And that, I am nerdy enough to love that. I'm I'm all in on that. So, I I don't think the very, very casual viewers will be drawn in by its cuteness quite as much (laughs) as Grogu, though. (laughs) No, probably true. All right. Well, thanks, JR, for for this mid-series assessment uh, of the book of Boba Fett. As I mentioned, JR's piece on The Mandalorian is at thinkchristian.net. Sarah Welch Larson and I, we talked about the series Mandalorian that is on a previous episode of the TC Podcast. So look for that in the podcast archives. You can find those at thinkchristian.net slash podcast. JR, you also have a new piece on the site right now about The Matrix Resurrections. Can you give us a brief tease on that? I loved Love the angle you took. I have not seen this anywhere else in all of the Matrix Resurrections coverage. So give us a sense of that. Yeah, so probably I will blame it on the fact that I've seen the original Matrix like 732 times. But there's a there's a moment in the new Matrix movie that involves strawberries and this new reality that Neo enabled to exist between humans and machines. 
something that his sacrifice at the end of the third movie enabled would enable them to resurrect strawberries essentially. And it took me back to the conversation about chicken from the original matrix. And how do we even know that the machines know what chicken tasted like? And it got, yes. me, I, I just, I got into this existential spiral about, <laughs> well, no one even discussed whether the strawberries actually taste like strawberries. And it made me think that, well, yeah, that's not the point though. And so I ended up in, in the piece, uh, I ended up tying that into what that says about the trajectory of faith and, and what, it, what it means that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall between us in the same way Neo did between humans and machines. And, uh, and then the, the new fruit that will exist for us in the tree of life in the new city of Revelation. So I went a lot of different places with it and had, I had a lot of fun with it, so. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating piece. As I said, a really unique angle. So hopefully by the time people hear this, pretty much everyone who's wanted to see The Matrix Resurrections probably has. So right, here yeah. you can dig down into um, another level here with that piece. Thanks again, JR. Take care, okay? Thank you, Josh. What would you do to get to me? What would you say to have your way? Would you give up or try again if I hesitate? Let you in, know what you be yourself or play a role. Tell all the boys, I keep it low. If I say no, would you turn away or play me off? Or would you stay up? Hey there, John J. Thompson here, and that was a bit of Aaliyah's Try Again, a perfect example of pop music's love of second chance songs. Whether the ultimate prize is the love of a woman, civic justice, or the realization of a particular dream, smart artists have long known that at least one of the reasons people turn their radios and record players on is to feel better about the moment they are in, and maybe to find a shred of hope for a better future on the horizon if they will just try again. That track came from Aaliyah's third and final album. It was originally only a bonus track on the international version of the LP, but has since made its way onto the main track listing. Aaliyah died in a tragic and seemingly avoidable plane crash in the Bahamas. Although she was already quite popular, that self-titled album exploded after her death. After spending five years working on it and being somewhat distracted by the filming of the movie Romeo Must Die, it was unclear if she would find her place in the R&B scene of the new millennium. Her eclectic, multi-genre sound challenged radio formats and sometimes confounded fans. The scandal of her alleged illegal underage marriage to R. Kelly was a distraction as well. My, how that narrative has changed over the last 20 years. Anyway, Aaliyah never got to experience the full realization of her second chance, but her influence and commercial impact only grew after her death as people spent time with that final album. And while not every song on this episode's extra-long playlist of second-chance turnaround don't-give-up songs is as perfectly or tragically tied to the theme as Aaliyah's is, it's a good mix to be sure. From barn-burning rock to soulfully introspective ballads, heavy metal to gospel, there's something here for everyone. And a little later in the show, you'll hear a little bit of Peter Gabriel's Don't Give Up. But I'm telling you, this list has over 50 songs, so if you've been wanting a soundtrack for your turnaround comeback, here you go. You can find it by searching for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify or click the link in the email you get from us. And if you can think of any great songs to add to the mix, hit me up on Twitter at John J. Thompson and I'll check them out. Until next time, this is JJT saying, hang in there. Don't give up. You've got this. The songs just told me so. But if Boba Fett was listening to anything in the Sarlacc scut, we all know it was probably metal, right? Josh Larson here back with the TC Podcast. 
joined by Abby Olchesi. And we're going to give listeners a peek behind the scenes here, Abby. When we were wondering in TC Slack channel if The Book of Boba Fett and The Weeknd's new album, Dawn FM, might make for a good pairing, you were the one who suggested Boba could have been listening to Dawn FM in the Sarlacc pit. So here we are. <laughs> we're considering both under this idea of second chances. Please do tell me more. What led you to that yeah. thought? In the first episode of uh, The Book of Boba Fett, you kind of get a background on how Boba Fett got out of the Sarlacc pit. And it's it's very dark and gross and I'd, I'd say kind of purgatorial. Like, it's not a pleasant experience. And I feel like Don FM has sort of a similar liminal space feel to it. And, of course, there's a, a large part of it, which is uh, Jim Carrey's voiceover talking about, like, the afterlife and kind of guiding you toward that light at the end of the tunnel which are, are feelings that I, I think might potentially be going through somebody's head if they're stuck in a Sarlacc pit and they're not sure if or when they're going to get out. I feel like, you know, you'd kind of have a sure. dark night of the soul while you think about your future. And uh, what's better for that than uh, than Dawn FM? I think that is apt. And yeah, this is essentially a concept album, right? The idea is that we're sort of listening to this radio station, maybe while we're stuck in traffic, maybe stuck in like a tunnel. Um, seeing the end there. And then what we hear are these songs by Abel Tesfaye, known as The Weeknd. And yes, these very interesting announcements, radio announcements. Sometimes they appear at the end of songs by Jim Carrey, who apparently I was reading, I forget where, is Tesfaye's real-life neighbor. I, so I think maybe that's yeah. how this came about. <laughs> so <laughs> kind of strange. You're tuned to Don FM, the middle of nowhere on your dial. So sit back and unpack. You may be here a while. But yeah, there is this sense of it being a purgatorial place. And the music itself is a very 80s sound, we should probably say. Mm -hmm. A lot of synths, drum machines going on here. I think on Gasoline, The weekend affects this voice that's exactly like that of Dave Gahan of Depeche Mode. Maybe that's why mm -hmm. Gasoline mm -hmm. is my favorite song on the album. So did all of this that's going on, Abby, the sounds itself, the concept, the use of Jim Carrey, did this strike you as corny or did you go for it? Oh, I totally went for it. This is this is an aesthetic that I'm a huge fan of. I really like sort of apocalyptic sounding 80s sci-fi type like aesthetics and soundtracks, particularly this time of year, like we're recording this in late January. That's exactly the kind of thing that I want to spend a lot of time listening to is just like okay. really weird kind of dark interior worlds that make you think about things both large and small. And you were mentioning kind of the 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 things that the album kind of connotes in terms of where the listener would be when they listen to this. I think one of the first things that struck me uh, was it, it made me think of, you know, in, in Children of Men, the, the government-sponsored uh, suicide pill <laughs> that people can take. Mm, yeah, yeah. I feel like this this sounds like something that you would listen to while you were taking that. Like this might be a, oh, wow. a tape. That would play alongside your journey, which is really yeah. dark and sad. But um, it was it was definitely a thing I was thinking about while I listened to this. Oh man, you, you somehow you made it darker. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think that that's accurate. I can easily see that. Yeah, being part of that package that was provided, right? Mm -hmm, the pill mm -hmm. and then this sort of audio. You know, at the same time, if it's not quite that decisive, in that this is a soundtrack to lead you to a specific act, one dark like that, it certainly is a work of self-reflection, I think. I don't know. Maybe that's what I want to talk about with you. For um, sure. The concept. Yeah. yeah, the concept suggests that as a possibility, self-reflection, right? 
Yeah, I would say that a lot of the weekend's music feels self-reflective to me to an extent, and this one maybe more so than any of the others. Like I remember when the weekend's first mixtape came out, which I think was House of Balloons, and the single that uh, that uses uh, Susie and the Banshees as the kind of the sample backing track. He's singing about like partying and going to clubs and like all the stuff that you would typically hear in like a an R and B like a modern R and B song. But with this really sad backing track that makes it sound like, especially with like the chorus, this is a happy house. Like you get the sense that it's really not like there's there's sort of a a darkness to it where there's definitely regret involved. Like there was there was happiness at some point. There might be numbing, which, of course, brings up the the later song. I can't feel my face. I think, yeah, throughout the weekend's career, there are these songs that are about hard partying and like taking drugs and having a lot of sex, but it never seems happy. <laughs> I feel like if there's a consistent protagonist in all of these songs, it's it's somebody who's doing this to numb the pain of something. And I feel like in this particular album, in Don FM, you're getting sort of a reflection on that of these are some moments of my life that I remember, that I regret, that I wish I had done differently. But there is actually, I think, a sense of hope that if you're thinking about all of these things and looking toward the future, especially when you get to uh, Jim Carrey's voiceover toward the end where he's talking about you have to you have to be heaven to see heaven, that there's like a lesson that's been learned, that there's something that you're moving to where you're going to be a more enlightened and better person. Yeah, to your point about this being maybe the most self-reflective, I've seen a few reviews that suggest that as well over at Pitchfork. Danny Blum wrote that for the first time in all his dead-eyed chronicles of debauchery, he sounds a little scared about it. Um, so a little more context there. And, you know, the very opening verses of the album do suggest this. But I got to say, you know, once we get past the opening title track, I wonder if the songs themselves, as much as I enjoy, you know, the sound of many of them, I wonder if they do kind of work against the introspection of those radio segments, the announcement that the announcements we get with Jim Carrey's voice. I mean, most of these songs do still seem to be, as you were describing some of the earlier work, you know, odes to fleeting physical connections, the the temporary bliss that comes with drug use really a pointed rejection of anything that might be true or lasting. Now, you were describing an intriguing tension you found in his earlier music between that stuff. It sounds like you would say that's continued here, and this isn't just empty gesturing towards reflection. Yeah, I would I would say so. I think it does take a little bit of reading, but it's I've I've always kind of had that sense in listening to his music, and I think it's definitely reflected here. So I think another interesting element to look at when you're considering the subtext of this is his choice of collaborators. One of the Safdie brothers does some partial voiceover on one of the spoken word portions of one of the tracks. A lot of the music in this album was co-produced with One O Tricks Point Never, uh, who's also known as uh, Daniel Lopatin is his, his given name, uh, who was the composer for the Safdie's Uncut Gems, which The Weeknd has a pretty significant cameo in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the Safdie brothers, I think, are kind of a good, close, artistic collaborator with The Weeknd in the sense that I think they're interested in very similar themes and very similar aesthetics. 
So if you think about kind of the hedonism of uh, the main character of Uncut Gems and the end that he eventually comes to and the fact that he's always living on the edge, it's an interesting lifestyle to watch unfold. And it's an interesting character to see kind of struggle in those situations, but it's definitely not a thing you'd ever want to live. And I think maybe, yeah, I think maybe in having that kind of nexus of collaboration, some of that may have rubbed off on, uh, on the weekend as he was putting together his latest album. That makes sense. And there's another person involved here very briefly, but Quincy Jones gets, Mm -hmm. it's sort of a spoken word piece, but feels more maybe like an interview, a snippet from an interview. And he's reflecting on his own traumatic upbringing and, It talks about how that's affected his handling of relationships as an adult. So there's definitely self-reflection. There's definitely regret there. So if you see The weekend's authorial voice also, not just in the lyrics he's singing, but also in, as you say, the people he chooses to collaborate with, and then those spoken word pieces by Jim Carrey or even Quincy Jones' words, if you see him having some authorship there too, it does make this more complicated uh, and more sophisticated, really, than it might look like on the surface. So I mentioned Gasoline Abbey as one that the sound in particular caught my ear. Was there a song you wanted to highlight or anything else you wanted to touch on about the album before we wrap up? I'm a big fan of Gasoline as as a single track, but I feel like in general, it's hard for me to single out, like, the the times that I've listened to this album, I have listened to it beginning to end. Like, I don't really single out a particular track as a favorite because it feels very much like a singular experience. Like, you're supposed to be listening to this all at once uh, to kind of get back to the, uh, the authorial voice. I would not say that that has been the case for me with his previous albums. There's usually one mm. or two songs that I'm going to listen to a lot. But Don FM strikes me as the kind of album where I'm probably going to listen to it just like from start to finish with no real stopping, which I think is a really interesting kind of advancement for him as an artist and uh, interesting consideration of a concept album in general, because that's, I mean, that's something that I associate usually with much older albums, not something that's more uh, contemporary like this. Yeah. And I'd agree. That's the experience to have with it. You know, I try when we talk about uh, albums on the show, I try to do that anyway, where I set aside some time to sit down and, um, listen to them all as one piece, spend time with the lyrics. And in this case, doing that, it really felt like that's where it clicked. You know, I had Mm -hmm. sampled bits and pieces here and there, especially as we were talking about uh, doing it on the podcast. But yeah, it really wasn't until I sat down and went all the way through where it kind of came together as its its own thing. So I think you're definitely correct about that. Now, before we let you go, Abby, did I see that you are covering Sundance remotely? This year, the Sundance Film Festival? I am. So Lawrence in Kansas City is in kind of an interesting position in that we are one of the satellite locations for Sundance. And so that's right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. So Lawrence will be hosting some in person screenings the last weekend of the festival that I will be covering, but I also will be covering remotely some online screenings since the festival itself went fully online. And that experience for me will start tonight. So I'm pretty excited to oh, cool. okay. uh, to check out a few movies. Okay. I knew it was starting soon. So I thought maybe yeah. you'd seen a few things you could recommend, but we'll, we'll just have to follow you on Twitter uh, to get those updates. Is that the best place? Absolutely. Yeah. I will be sharing those as I can. There's a number of, uh, of movies that I'm pretty excited to see. On a music note, there is a documentary called Meet Me in the Bathroom that's uh, based on the book of the same name about the kind of New York based indie music revival that took place in the early 2000s, which is 
basically all the music I listened to in high school. So I'm pretty excited to okay. hear more about about some of those formative experiences. Sounds great. All right. We will be sure to follow you to keep up with all that. Thanks so much, Abby. Take care. All right. Thanks, Josh. Drove the night toward my home, the place that I was born on the lakeside. Don't give up. A little encouragement there from Peter Gabriel for us and maybe for the weekend. Don't Give Up comes from Gabriel's 1986 So album. At the very least, you've got a nice 80s vibe there that fits in well alongside the sound of the weekend's Dawn FM. So Boba Fett is out of the Sarlacc pit, still sort of finding his way as of this recording at least. The weekend remains somewhat stuck in that existential traffic jam on Dawn FM. The good news is that another chance is out there waiting for all of us, despite where we're at or who we've been. That's the gift of the gospel, and it's always a privilege to consider that gift in the light of pop culture alongside friends like J.R. Forresteros and Abby Olchesi. You can follow both of them on Twitter, at J.R. Forresteros, at Abby Olchesi, of course, we're on Twitter, too, also on Facebook at Think Christian. And if you ever want to watch us jabber away, well, you can see these episodes on the Think Christian YouTube channel. That's also where you can catch the video essays I've been making for the TC Movie Club series on the Coen Brothers films. Now, speaking of YouTube, if you are watching us there right now, you missed out on a couple of tracks from John J. Thompson's Spotify playlist that he compiled to accompany this episode. It was another big one, this time under the theme of Second Chances. And you can catch up with those songs and a bunch more by searching for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify. The Think Christian podcast is a production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Basslin. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our fame. 